I am quite sure that you may be asking yourself the question, everything around us right now speak of Christmas. And everything we have been doing in the service speaks of Thanksgiving. Well, that was only true because Thanksgiving came a week late this year, and so it's right on top of what would have been our first Sunday of Advent, a message on anticipating Christmas. But I think in the light of what we are facing in our world today, that it is essential that somehow we look in another direction to find the way in which we will be able to deal with life in these days in which we are living. You cannot disagree with me that these are challenging days. These are days that call for a wisdom far beyond ours because nothing we do, nothing we do. I, I was upstairs doing something two mornings ago and I ran downstairs and I said to Lois, did you see the news from London? London Bridge was used as a a young man who was let out of prison without any supervision, having threatened the society not too long ago. He was let out of prison, and he was walking on London Bridge two mornings ago, dressed in a camouflage, um, bulletproof suit, but that was not all. He had a knife, and he cut from right to left and killed two people just for the sake of being on London Bridge. And unfortunately... He was killed. We live in difficult times, and Paul talks to Timothy and tells him that this is how you are to deal with the last days in which we're living. I call it, you know, I look at that, and if you look at the word siege, it's, that's not the way it's spelled, but that's the way I put it in the bulletin, so I am to blame for this, S-I-E. And um, if one of my English teachers were around, they would say, Winston, shame on you. But it's the S-I-E. Paul write, writes to Timothy, and he said to Timothy, I want you to understand something. And I'm going to speak for the next few minutes on Thanksgiving under siege. Thanksgiving is, under, is being attacked in different ways, and you will see what I mean by that and why it's important. I got this from the internet last evening. I didn't see it before, but I thought, what, a, what, a, what an interesting thought. This is a survey that was taken, and these are experts who are talking. Thanksgiving presents us with the opportunity to develop one of the healthiest, most life-affirming and uh, covenantal lifestyle that that leads to rejoicing and blessing. Research shows that the grateful people, that grateful people tend to be healthy and happy. They exhibit a lover that, that, that gets rid of things like stress and depression. They cope better with adversity and they sleep better. They tend to be happier and more satisfied with life. I love this part of it. Even the partners tend to be more content in their relationship 
with thankful people. G.K. Chesterton, whom you have heard from this platform before, writes this. He calls gratitude the highest form of thought. Gratitude is the highest form of thought. From a Christian perspective too, gratitude and thanksgiving are vital because Jesus shows that his last means with his meal with his disciples, he gave thanks. So vital a part of the Christian life is gratitude that gratitude can become a way of life by developing the simple habit of counting your blessings and it can enhance the degree to which we are truly blessed. That's not from a pastor. That's not from a church. That's from research. People who have examined the lives of people and have come to the conclusion that the happiest people are people who give thanks. We were downtown Salem yesterday at a certain restaurant for brunch. My wife and myself and my son and his wife and, and a family walked in. There was a little girl, cute little kid, second cutest kid I've ever seen in my life. And, and, and she was sitting, she was sitting over here, and we were over here. And my son said, look at that little girl. She looked as angry as could be. She was about to get a feast. This is a beautiful restaurant downtown uh, Salem. And she was just sitting there as if to say, I don't want to be here. I am bored being here. And she was doing other things. And she reminded me, in a, in a little sense, from the book of Numbers. We won't go there. The book of Numbers is a book in which God showed himself kind, loving, powerful, his presence with his people. And do you know, I checked it myself to make sure I can say this. In the book of Numbers, thanks is not mentioned once. Not once. That's why God, God, they rehearsed the things that God did for them. In fact, in one point, they were in the wilderness and they didn't have anything to eat. So God sent down bread from heaven. You, you can read this in 1 Kings. And they were complaining, I don't like this crummy food. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. That's what they said. That's exactly what they said. And you know what they said after that? Okay, so he provided bread. Can he also set a table? No thanks at all. Not the slightest expression of gratitude. And so this morning, I want to talk to you for a few minutes on gratitude. And, and may I just say, I, I, I usually talk some things out to my wife. I didn't tell her this one because I was afraid she might correct it for me. Um, because I, I wanted to say there's a difference there's a difference between gratitude and thanksgiving. They're not the same. Gratitude is the attitude. Thanksgiving is the expression. Gratitude is what is inside. The feeling, the, in fact, the word grace is the source of our word gratitude. To receive something that causes the emotions to rise with a sense of excitement. And in other words, for the Christian, it is not simply 
giving thanks for what they have. It is thanking the one who gave it to them. It's more than having. It is recognizing that if you have a, if you have a gift, you have a giver. But Paul begins by talking about the times that produces ingratitude. And he begins by saying this to Timothy. Timothy, I want you to know, I want you to realize this, I want you to really pay attention to this. That's what those words mean when different translations have it in a, in a different way. But he says, I want you to understand this, that in the last times, in the last times, and we tend to think of the last times as a time having to do with days just before Jesus returns. But that's not the last times. That's the end of times. The last time is a period of time. The existence of human beings living from one position to another position. And the last times, please listen now. The last times began when Jesus was raised from the dead. And it continues until he comes again. So you are living in the last times. I am living in the last times. Because we can never tell when Jesus is going to part the heavens and come again. That's the only prophetic thing that is left for the Bible to be fulfilled. For Jesus to come a second time. He said, if I go, I will come again. And the scripture says that in the last times, life will be a certain way. The disciples thought they were living in that times. The early uh, church thought they were living in that times. And almost every generation of godly people think they are living in the last times. And I don't know if, if Jesus is going to come by the end of this service or he's going to come at the end of this year. I don't know. But I know that I am living in the last times. You are living in the last times, in the last days. From the time Jesus went back until the time he comes again. So he gives us the definition of the times. It is the period of the church age when the church exists on earth to demonstrate the goodness and the grace of God. But then Paul says something else. He said, although we're living in the last times, the times will be difficult. The times will be difficult. The King James translation calls it perilous times. Perilous times. Terrible times. This word is a unique word, perilous times. It is only used one other time in the entire Bible. And it is used in the 8th chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Where Jesus comes into Jericho and he finds two men who are demon-possessed. And it says this, they lived among the tombs and they were fierce men. Fierce. That's the exact Greek word as we have for perilous times. The last times will be perilous times. It will be times of fierce experiences for human beings. And it's interesting when you think of it, it is not times only of difficult wars and so on, but it's a time of moral, spiritual, and ethical decay. It's a devolution of human experience 
living in a world that God created, but seeking to get rid of the God who created it. The eviction of God, if you please. Terrible times. I, I, I thought I wasn't going to deal with this, but I'll just share this thought and then go on to talk about the tragedy of the times. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the life of Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the one who introduced to the whole world the idea of the death of God. And Nietzsche said this, that when God dies, the whole world is going to be like an insane asylum. When God dies. Even though he was introducing the death of God. That God is no longer necessary. We have come to the place where we have arrived in our minds to live in a state where God is no longer necessary. He was created for those who wanted somebody to fear, which I find very stupid. But nonetheless, they had created him and now we, know we no longer need him. And he dies. And when he dies, the whole world will be like an insane asylum. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know how Nietzsche died? Insane. Insane. Perilous times. We're going to be in fierce times. We will be living at a time when life seems to have absolutely no, no explanation for what is happening. And, and I, I, don't, I won't get into it, but you will see in the text that was read by Elizabeth this morning that unthankfulness and ungratefulness is right in the middle of 18 different descriptions of the times in which we're living. 18 of them. You can read them for yourself. I wish we had time to go over them, but that's for another time. The difficulty of the times in which we're living. The whole world becomes an unsafe place. There is no place to hide, as Paul Harvey used to say. You can run, but you can't hide. In every sense of the word. Look, look, at, look at what it says in verse 13 of 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 5. In the last times, evil men will become worse and worse. I want that to sink in, friends. Worse and worse. We will see things unfolding that we never thought possible. I remember in, in, in graduate school, we had to read a book called Brand, Brand New World, A Brand New World. And, and I was reading that book because it was assigned. And as I looked at the things that the authors were talking about, I thought, no, that's not possible. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm living in the midst of them today. I won't go into details, some of it very, very gruesome, 
difficult times, times of tremendous fierceness, of ugliness between people, between nations. Let's look at the tragedy, because this is where the title for the sermon comes from, in 2 Timothy 2 to 4. I said that Paul states about 18 or 19 things that he says sabotages, sabotage wisdom, um, thankfulness. He said, thankfulness escapes the human race because of the deception of human autonomy. In other words, listen to what it says. In the last days, men, and that word men is anthropos, talking about human beings, men and women, not only men is a gender. In the last times, men, human beings, will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of themselves. They will be speaking in terms of man. Anthropos. And the word there, lovers of themselves, is to become autonomous. He or she wants to rule his own life. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody. No one will tell me, not even God, how I am to live my life. I am the captain of my own soul, if you please. Let, let me demonstrate it for you. Nebuchadnezzar, in the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel, as he made his kingdom. It's a beautiful story if you read it. Uh, take time to read it. And it seems that one day... The king was walking, admiring everything that, that was his. He looked over his whole, whole state. And at that time, Babylon ruled the entire world. And they could send soldiers anywhere and get what they wanted. Listen to verses 28 to 30. At this time, as he was doing that, the king, at the end of 12 months... He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered. In other words, he answered himself. He was talking to himself. He was saying, this is really neat. I've done a great job, have I not? Listen to what it says. Is not great Babylon which I have built by my might and power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Is not this great Babylon which I have, have built, which I have erected for my own purpose? That's when we begin to leave God in the distance and we begin to focus upon ourselves. Our affection is on me, it's on mine. It is, it is, it is, it is leaving God in a prideful way in a way that no one can get close to you because you only allow those whom you want close to you, those who you approve of. I, I want to read something to you, but lovers of pleasures mean, my friends, that God is dethroned and self is enthroned. So that when Jesus came into the world, and he was calling disciples, the first thing he said to them, if you're going to follow me, you better deny yourself. That's the first thing he said. Because self is at the center. The center of, of, 
all the divisions we find in the world today, we can't give God thanks for what someone else is doing because I am not doing it. I'm not getting any credit for it. <laughs> you remember a few weeks ago I preached on, on human pride and, and Saul was celebrating the fact when the ladies were dancing in the streets and he said, Saul has killed his thousands. And, and Saul celebrated that fact. And then the next line says, but David has killed his 10,000. And Saul said, I hate you. That's exactly what he said. Changed his whole life. When we are surrounded, my friends, by the evils that Paul talks about, it, it feeds our ingratitude. It focuses upon self and what I want is what is important to me and not even God is going to tell me how to live my life. That's what we have here. That's what we're dealing with. I, I, I want to be so careful because I, 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 I'm a Canadian That's the passport I travel with. I love this country. But my friends, one of the things that gave me a love for this country was the fact that until recently, this country has started to forget God. They have, for, they have, they have things are happening today that if those things persist, one of the things that it will not lead to is to a heart of gratitude. It will not. It will lead to me. Verse 5 says, they are lovers of self, not lovers of pleasures, and not of God. Pleasures. What benefits me, what I like, what I don't like. So look, that is the, de the deception of autonomy. If I turn life to me, as Oprah says, you will find the real you. And my friends, the real you is not there. <laughs> it's not there. Because in the real you, you will find this darkness of attitude. Darkness of attitude. Paul names the 19 things, and right in the middle he said, ungrateful. Ungrateful. Gratitude is sustained by vices. If, if I am selfish, I don't have anyone to whom I am I accountable. If I am doing anything underhanded, I don't have a sense of gratitude. I look to see who will find out. If I'm violating my conscience, as, as many have done, it is because I, I don't I don't want to answer to anybody. I want only myself to be answered to, my friends. That's a very small, small order. St. Paul said this, What do you have that you did not receive? Or who made you superior? Deuteronomy 8 says, God is the one who made it possible for you to have the mind so that you can become wealthy. 
God is the one who gives you your looks so that you can, you, you, you can be who you are. God is the one who gives to you the land in which you live. Recognize that you are not here by the suggestion of any human being, but a loving God has placed you, given you what you have, provide for you again and again. And how do you live? Let me tell you, my friends, how we have come to be living. In 1863, the 16th president of this country made this statement to Congress. Quote, We have been the recipient of choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, in wealth, and power as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue that belongs to us. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God who made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, capital P, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and for forgiveness. Words of Abraham Lincoln, 1863. He wouldn't be able to use those words today. Because in that day, God still was perceived as existing. Today, he's one of us or not needed at all. How do we overcome ingratitude? Gratitude to God should be established as a habitual uh, reception, not, not one day a year. We say that every year, but we still get into trouble. Lamentations 3 says this, for the compassion, the compassion of God never fails. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. To overcome ingratitude or unthankfulness of spirit, I place before you quickly and briefly two two steps that needs to be taken that need to be taken number 1 we must learn to show gratitude to god for all his gifts the gifts of god and they are two in number but in these two gifts my friends are things beyond our comprehension first the gift of grace the gift of grace we sing it at almost everything that takes place in the national history. Amazing grace, how sweet the song that saved a wretch like me. But do you know the history of that song? And do you know what grace means? Let me quote again to save time what grace is. Grace is God's free, sovereign, 
undeserved favor of love to men and women in their state of sin and guilt, which manifests itself in forgiveness of sins and deliverance from its penalty. It is connected with the mercy of God as distinguished from his justice. For if God should mark your sins and mine, none of us would stand the test. What is grace? Grace is saying, my friends, I will give you what you do not deserve and what you can never earn. You can never pay for what I'm going to give to you. I will take it upon myself, all the guilt of the world. God is going to show his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. The gift of God. The gift of the gospel. We use the gospel to say that we're talking about salvation. But my friends, the gospel has to do with every area of life. Jesus becomes not only our savior. He becomes our sanctifier. He becomes our preserver. He becomes our guide. He becomes our shepherd. The gospel speaks of all this. Salvation is not simply a ticket out of hell and out of hell to go to heaven. What salvation is, is God's story in your life and mine. Where we surrender the rights of myself to God so that he guides my life. He directs my life and I find, listen, I find that the greatest, the greatest purpose for which I exist is to love God. And let me tell you something, friends. When we love God, we will learn how to love our wives, how to love our children, how to love our neighbors. And you want, you want to hear something else? I don't know if you want to hear this. <laughs> when we love God, we will love our enemies. That's the love of God. While we were enemies, he died for us so that he puts his love in us so that we can pray for our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use us. That's a grateful heart. That's how we overcome. The gift, the gift of God, the gift of grace, and the gift of the gospel. My friend, the gospel is a message. It's, it's not simply a way of life. It's a message. It's a message that comes to us from God saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I'm going to prove my love for you by letting my son go to the cross. And we're going to be celebrating that in the birth of Christ when he came. Lastly, the generosity of God. The generosity of God. 1 Timothy 4.4. Listen to Paul. God has made everything good which is good for us. And nothing is to be despised. They should be taken with thankfulness. Thankfulness. Because the power of gratitude is the work of grace in our lives. And when we say thanks to God, it means that we have been released from ourselves to turn to God and to look to him who has provided for us. And we say to him, thank you. The gratitude is in the heart. The lips express the thanks. Now, I don't have time to develop all that, but what I want to do is to end with with the story of the song with which we're going to end the service. And I won't read the whole thing. The name of the song 
is now thank we all our God. Now thank we all our God. It was written over 400 years ago, but still rich with meaning. Written by a German pastor, Martin Reinhardt. Or Reinhardt, whichever way he pronounces it. He, he, he lived in, in the 16th century. He was born on April 23, 1586, in Saxony, Germany. He was the son of a poor coppersmith. He became a pastor, became a believer, became a pastor. At the same time, and I'm jumping here, at the same time, that's when the plague came across Germany. Throughout those war years, several waves of deadly pestilence and famine swept the city as the various armies marched through the town, leaving death and destruction in their way. Reinhardt's home served as a refuge for the afflicted victims, even though it was said that Reinhardt often had difficulty providing food for them and clothing for the family. The plague of 1637 was particularly severe. As its height, at its height, Reinhardt was the only remaining minister often conducting 50 funerals a day. And I took some time to say, what would that mean a week? And what would it mean a year? He was doing something like 30 uh, a month. He was doing something to the tune of 4,000 funerals every month. And then, during the closing years of, of the war, his tongue was invaded by the soldiers, soldiers from Austria. assisted by the Swedish army. During one of the occupations of the Swedish army, there came the demand that a large tribute pay payment be made by these already impoverished people. Reinhardt interceded with the leaders of the army with such purpose, supported by the prayers of his people, that the tribute demanded was finally reduced to a much smaller, it wasn't eliminated, just smaller, it is said that the Swedish commander would not at first consider Reinhardt's request for the lowering of the levy. The pastor turned to his humble parishioners and said, Children, come. We can find no mercy with man. Let us take refuge in God. And on his knees, he led his parishioner in prayer and the singing of the hymn we are about to sing now. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices. And as you sing this hymn, friends, ask God for a thankful heart because what Reinhardt went through, you and I perhaps will never go through, and yet we run the, air, the, we run the risk 
of allowing things to sabotage our gratitude, let us not lose sight of the giver of every good and perfect gift. Let us pray. Father, we do not want to be morbid. We, we do not want to, to, Lord, sound like we are killjoys. But we can never enjoy anything to the fullest of meanings until we enjoy to the glory of God. Give us, give us hearts that are full of grace that we might feel our gratitude in our breasts and it might be heard from our lips. Let us leave this place, our God. Oh, God, not to be embarrassed by giving thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Gifts of grace, gifts of charity, unspeakable gifts, gifts that come to us again and again and again. In Jesus' name. Amen.